Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Take your Bibles out, turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 7. We'll begin there. Now our, we are in our series, Kings and Kingdoms, and we're learning how to rule and reign with Christ. Our theme verse, and we've read it just about every week, 1 Peter 2 and 9, and let's all say it together. Maybe it's on the screen if you'll put that up there. We're going to all say it at the same time. If it's there, it may not be there. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who we are, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who we are. We are chosen by God, set apart by God. He even calls us a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Now, we're a part of this royalty, this royal priesthood, and we're in God's great kingdom, and he took us out of a kingdom of darkness and brought us into a kingdom of his marvelous light. We need to learn how to live like kings and priests unto our God. And so what we've done is we've gone back to the very first kingdom period in the nation of Israel, and we're learning what to do and what not to do. We learned from Saul what not to do. We're learning from David what to do, and last week we saw some things we ought not to do as we looked at David's life, and it's a colossal failure. And so we're going to learn from that today. Uh, now, you, last week, Jason understood that a masterful job, got to see it on, online, and he talked about a couple great sins that David committed back to back. One was the sin of Bathsheba, the adultery with Bathsheba, and the, the other was the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. We learned last week that it was a culture of honor and shame, and how David brought shame on the nation of Israel, brought shame to the name of the Lord his God, and as a result, he's going to suffer the consequences of those actions. Now, I want to tell you, when you think about sins, and, and every sin is bad with God. I mean, there's, in God's eyes, there's really no difference, but I will tell you, there are some sins that have more collateral damage. It's one thing to lust after a woman, and the Bible says when you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and every man, woman has at some time dealt with that in their own lives, but it's an entirely different thing to step it up to the next level and commit adultery, because marriages have been destroyed, families have been destroyed, homes have been destroyed, and, and, and in one simple, very quick, very brief action, you can destroy what took years to build up of trust and faithfulness and love. It can be destroyed and bam, it's gone. Messed up. The, the damage is so hard. It takes so long to overcome something like that in a marriage relationship. Of course, murder, we know you take someone out and that's a lot of collateral damage right there. And, and as you think about it, maybe those are a couple of the biggest sins in our minds that we can think of simply because of the damage that comes from that. But I will tell you, we also learned last week that God's grace is great. And, and the bottom line is God can literally forgive any sin that anybody has ever done because God died on the cross, his blood was spilled, and no matter how bad or how heinous the, the crime or the sin might be, God is able to forgive. And he's able to restore you to relationship. 
And he can come in, and I don't care how bad it may have been, God can wash that sin away, take it away. He covers it by his blood, and he can restore you to right relationship. But I will also tell you this. Even after God forgives and God cleanses, there is another law in the word of God called the law of sowing and reaping. And so often we reap the consequences of our actions. And yes, God forgives us and we're in right relationship with him and we move on with God and God's grace is amazing. But, but the consequences of those things we do in our lives have long-lasting ramifications. It says in the book of Galatians, a very familiar passage, it says in 6 and verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the spirit from that spirit will reap everlasting life. God does forgive. His forgiveness is great. But there is also a law of God. It is called the law of sowing and reaping. And if you continually sow to the flesh, you will in your own life reap destruction of the same. And the Bible says if you sow to the spirit man, that spiritual part of your nature, you will reap everlasting life. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are we sowing our life into today? What are we doing? David is going to reap the consequences of his action that are going to follow him. And so let's stand together as we look at God's word this morning. This is going to be a hard message today. I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, I'd much rather preach on joy. You know, we all love the joy sermons. Man, wasn't that the peace sermons, the happy sermons, and we like to leave. But but as a pastor, I am am bound to preach the whole counsel of God. And even as I bring this message today, even though it may seem very harsh, I bring it in love because I want to spare you the pain and the heartache that David went through and we will go through in our own lives if we don't heed God's word and obey what God has asked us to do. So let us look at it together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, or 12, excuse me, in verse number 7 today. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And listen to this. If all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. In other words, David, you're here because of me. You're the king because of me. I raised you up. And yet you took it so lightly and carelessly. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives, I will give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, listen to this, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now before God, he stands clean. The sin is gone. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's the good news. But 
Because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Wow. Father, we we come to you today recognizing so much that we need your help as we open up the word of God. Lord, teach us today. Spare us pain, heartache, grief. Cleanse our hearts, I pray. Open our spirits up before you. I thank you, God, for the sweet Holy Spirit that will convict us of sin and draw us back to you. And we love you, God. And we ask it in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Wow. What a heavy load to carry. Because you've done this, your son's going to die. Can you imagine that? Losing a one-week-old, brand-new baby boy all because of your sin, because of your selfishness, because you have done this. I, I can't imagine the grief that David must have experienced because there's this grief of knowing he's going to lose his son. It's everybody's ambition. I'm going to have a son. I'm going to have a boy. It's the most exciting day of my life, and it's great and awesome, and now he's going to be gone. And I had a part in that. Pick it up. Pick up with verse number 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, went to his house, spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought while the child was living, we spoke to David and he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I, I, think, I think all of us at some time or another will encounter tragedy in our lives. It's going to hit us, and, and we're going to go through grief, and we're going to go through loss, and, and how do we handle that? It's a struggle. We face that. We deal with that in our own lives. Jesus tells his disciples a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and we have that sermon today, and he, he talks about two kinds of soils. He says there's, there's houses that are built on sand, and there's houses that are built on the solid rock. He said storms come to both houses. When you ask Jesus Christ into your heart and life, do not think storms and trials and tests will not come your way. They will come at some time or another. It's going to happen. The rain falls on the just. The rain falls on the unjust. The rain falls on every type of house there is. He says, though, the one difference is the house that's going to remain standing is the house that's built on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to the word of God. He said, this rock is like anybody who hears my voice and obeys my voice. It's like that house being built on a solid foundation. But he said, the one that's built on the sand is the one who disregards Jesus, who who doesn't obey his word, doesn't hear his word, and doesn't follow the Lord. He says, that house will crumble and fall. And I am so thankful that even though we will go through the storms of life, I have the Lord Jesus Christ who will help me. He will pull me through. He can give me hope. Even in the midst of the storms, I want to talk to you a little bit about that grieving, hurting process this morning. I, uh, because I've experienced it many different times in my life, as as I know many of you have, and if you haven't, it will come. 
I, I think when you lose somebody, it's, it's really, really hard. And what happens is you experience all kinds of different emotions, and they, they come in like waves. Someone described the grief process. They, it just rolls in on you like waves. Uh, the, and, and, and some people say, well, time cures and heals everything. Well, it doesn't really because the grief is always there. Uh, August the 5th, which was last Saturday, was my first wife's birthday. It would have been her birthday. And so once again, all those thoughts kind of come your way and they hit you. The only thing about the waves, even though the waves keep coming in, those waves of grief, they will get further apart. They don't come quite so frequently and they do begin to slow down to some extent. But I remember all the emotions that I went through and, and you will go through when you go through a time of grief. I think one of the ones that, we, that I had trouble dealing with was anger. And David must have felt this kind of anger anger. You're mad. Why? God, it just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't add up. And, and so, so how can life be so unfair? And God, if you're a good God, and we sang it today, God, you are good, you are good, you are good. And we believe that and we declare that until we lose somebody we love. And what's the first thing we do? We begin to question the goodness of God. I will tell you, God is good even in the midst of the tragedy. He never will ever cease to be good because that's a part of his nature. God is always good. And yet the human response, the natural response, the, the, the gut that's crying out inside of us is the anger thing. And I can imagine David, when he's fasting and crying for his son and his boy, he's saying, don't take it out on him. And he has this, all this anger pent up inside of him and, and that will come and that is a part of that grief process. And then there's guilt. Maybe I could have done more. Maybe I should have said more. Maybe I should have been there. I wasn't there when it happened. And what happens? And, and, and the feeling of total loss of control, that, I, that these things were out of my control, and we want to control everything around us and everybody around us and every circumstance around us. And, and this is the one thing I couldn't control. It just got away from me. And I don't know how and why this happened and all those Emotions are, are, are flooding your heart and your life, and so you deal with guilt. I can imagine the guilt David must have felt. It must have been this pain that he bore was so heavy, so intense, because it was his sin. Mm. And then fear, sometimes that's an emotion we go through, and, and it's kind of like goes like this, where do I go from here? What am I going to do now? How will I survive? And then the feeling of abandonment. I think everybody will experience that. They feel like they're all alone, especially if you lose a spouse or a child and, and you have that kind of loss that you are dealing with and you feel abandoned by the one who is deceased. Now you've left me alone and I'm here by myself and how am I going to make it? What am I going to do? And you feel abandoned by others who don't understand. I remember having this, this weird feeling for, for, for years, for 34 years, it had always been Larry and Tanya, or Tanya and Larry. And it was kind of those names went together because as a husband and wife, you are one. And so, and, but I found my identity in my wife. And so now that my wife is not there, I felt like my identity was gone and I was abandoned by her and, and all that kind of stuff is going on. All those emotions are happening. And, and, and then we're around, I'm around all my couple friends, and so I had been married, and I had been one of the couples with them, and Tanya and I had been with them, and we did stuff together, and I, I had this weird feeling no one's going to want to hang with me anymore because I don't have 
the life of the party with me. And so, you know, weird stuff just goes on in your brain. And, and maybe you feel abandoned by God. That's the hardest kind of abandonment. Grief, man, it's just hard. And I think as we look at David, we, we see this grief that he feels, but there's a study on grief right here because we also see how David began to overcome his grief. And I want to give you some practical things today that will help you to overcome grief. And by the way, if you have lost a loved one any time in the last year or even longer and you are still deeply grieving, which is likely going to be the case, we are beginning a new class called Grief Share, and we bring people together who have hurt and gone through the pain and agony of it, and it's going to start, I think, in a few weeks, couple of weeks, and so I would encourage you to sign up for that in the foyer of the church and get plugged in because they help one another, they care about each other, you'll, you'll learn and study the whole grief process and really how to break through that, and so I encourage you to sign up for that. But David displays a healthy response to grief. Let's pick this story up with verse number 19. And you'll, you look at his response. It's interesting here. And David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized his child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. And yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he'd washed and put lotion and changed his clothes, he went up to the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went up to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request of his servants, they brought food and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead and you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let my child live, but, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, a couple of things I want to share with you. When you're going through grief, let me just give you two quick pointers. And the first is simply this. Tell it to God. Pour it out to the Lord. Take it to God. Pour it out to God. He said, he said even while the child was alive, I sought God. I fasted. I prayed. I wept. I waited on the Lord. After my child died, I worshiped the Lord, and I sought God, and I spent time in his presence. I have got good news. You have a holy comforter. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our divine comforter. You have another comforter that would be like him, the same as he, the Holy Spirit, who would come back and would comfort us in all of our affliction. God the Father is called the God of all comfort, uh, one who comes along beside of us, our paraclete, one who walks with us every step of the way. And I want to tell you, you can tell him anything. If you're angry, tell God about it. Say, God, I'm angry. This doesn't make sense. And that's the right place to release your anger. It's the right place to release your hurt. It's the right place to take your heartache. It's the right place to take your tears because you've got someone who cares, who loves, who knows, who knows exactly what you're going through. You can take it to Jesus every step of the way. Be open and honest. God can handle every single emotion you will experience. I don't know how people without Jesus do it. Turn to Psalm 30. Look at the psalm, a psalm of David. It says in Psalm 30 and verse number five, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Rejoicing will come. 
Jump down to verse 11. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth. You clothe me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever and ever and ever and ever. Listen, God knows already. He knows how you feel. Take it to him. And the good news, when you do that, he has a promise. And I want you to see the promise. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Look at this promise. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now he tells us, take it to God. Take it to Jesus. Cast your cares on him. Look at the next verse. And the God and the peace of God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Take it to the Lord. He will guard your heart. He'll give you a peace that, that it's, it, it surpasses understanding. You can't figure it out. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know how you're getting that supernatural strength from God, but it's there. He invites us to come and wait on him and take it to the Lord. God will give you a hope. Then the second thing to realize is know that God will give you a hope for the future. I want you to pick up the story. Look, if you would, at verse number 23 again. I want you to see something. Now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now listen to me. In that one verse, you see a brief glimpse of the Jewish belief of life after death. Now, our theology of the resurrection of heaven and hell is more formed in the New Testament. But all the way back to the time of David, they knew that this life was not all there is, that there is going to come a day when we are going to see our loved ones again. And he says, I can cry and weep. I can't bring my child back, but I know I will go to him. I know I will see him again. And listen to me. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, death is never, ever the final answer. We will see them again. I've got in heaven a whole bunch of neat people waiting I can't wait to see again. People that I've buried in this church, people I've done their funerals for, people that we have loved and cared about, people that have gone on before us. But I will tell you, heaven is gonna be grand because they can't come back to me. But like David in faith, I can say, I will go unto them. I will see them again. And that changes everything. That is a game changer. He writes in Thessalonians that when we grieve, we do grieve, but we don't grieve like the Gentiles who are without hope because I have the hope that one day a trumpet blast is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we who are alive are going to remain, are going to be caught up and meet them in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Mm. We have a hope. And then look at the next verse. It says in verse number 24, and David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and he lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Even in this life, there's hope. He said, I'm going to give you another son. This son would be the wisest king who would ever reign in the Israel's history. He would be the king who would give us most of the Proverbs that we have today that have changed our lives forever. And so there's a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now that's the reaping. 
That's the reaping. That's the reaping the grief. It's the reaping the heartache. It's the reaping the, the loss of his firstborn son. But there was another reaping that David would go through that Nathan said would happen that I think was even more tough to deal with than even the loss of his own son. And that was the reaping of rebellion in his own household. And for the next 20 years, David is going to deal with this rebellion of his sons, of his children, Amnon and Absalom. And he said, Nathan said in verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. Verse number 11, and out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And so what I'm about to share with you is a very interesting, intriguing story that, that kind of weaves itself through Scripture. But it's probably one of the saddest, hardest stories to deal with in David's life. The rebellion of his son Absalom. Let me take you back a little further and tell you the seeds of rebellion where it started. David had a son by the name of Amnon. Amnon was the half-brother of Absalom. Now David as the king had many different wives. It was what the king did. And you know last week that he just took it upon himself to take another man's wife and brought shame upon himself and upon Israel. But he's the king. So he thinks he can do what he wants to and he's above the law of God and the law of everybody else. And so he does it. And he had several different wives. And one wife has a son by the name of Amnon. Another wife has a son by the name of Absalom, which makes them half-brothers. He also has a, by the same wife that uh, he had Absalom, he has, a, she has, he has a daughter by the name of Tamar, who would be Absalom's sister. Amnon sees Tamar, his half-sister, and he lusts after her. We can't even call it love. He sees her, he's infatuated, he says, I've got to have her, she's beautiful, and I'm the, I'm the, uh, the son of the king, and I can have whoever I want to. And, and the Bible says, and it's, listen to this language, he was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister. He's sick in love with her, he just can't get her out of his mind. He sends for Tamar to prepare food in front of him. And the Bible says in that encounter, he sends his buddies off, everybody out of the room. She's in there cooking, doing whatever. And the Bible says he grabs her, he rapes her. And so you now you have rape in David's kingdom. And you have this going on, all a part of kind of this reaping thing that he sowed with Bathsheba earlier. Now pick this story up. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 15. And here's what happens, and I want, I want to share something with you today, and, and I want you to get this. It's verse 15, then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. You see, lust is selfish. Lust is about what I get out of it. Love is what I give away. A huge difference. And what happens is young people today confuse those two emotions. They confuse lust and love. And they see a good-looking girl walk by and they say, oh, I'm, I'm so in love. You don't know what love is. It's not love. You don't love until you give yourself away, until you put them above yourself. Until then, it's just simply lust. It is all about what I get out of the relationship, okay? You follow this now. He says, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. He rapes her, then he kicks her out of the room. 
No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong. You see that culture of shame again and honor that Jason talked about. Would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. Now listen to me. Everybody tune in. I want you to get this. Just uh, especially all you single folks, really listen to me good. Pastor Larry wants to teach you something right now. When a man talks love to get sex, you better run. When he says, if you love me, you will do this and this and this. Get out of that relationship. It is a relationship built on lust. It is a relationship that will not last. Run. He will turn on you just as quickly because now you are used up and the challenge is gone. Don't ever think you can use sex as a tool to keep your man. If so, he is not worth keeping. Somebody help me here. This is good. This is, I'm saving you a ton of grief. I'm saving you from divorce. I'm saving you for your future. Listen to me. God puts this stuff in the word of God about flee fornication, not because he's trying to destroy you of your fun. He's trying to keep you from sowing heartache and pain and trouble in your future. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reapeth. You can't start and build a relationship on sex. Sex in the marriage context is great. It is necessary, it is important to a marriage relationship. But you start learning each other on a soulish, spiritual level, the physical intimacy will come later. Don't worry about that. That's the natural, easy part. Develop that friendship first. Your wife ought to be the very best friend in your entire life, and anything built on the physical will not last. David becomes furious when he finds out what's happened. The scandal kind of just kind of, kind of flows throughout. It's this public shame. You know, like Jason said last week, everything's done in the open. Everybody kind of knows what's going on around the kingdom. There's not a lot of secrets there. David's furious, and yet David could do nothing. Now listen to me. David can't do anything to his son. Why? Because he lacked the moral authority to discipline his own son because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. How can he properly even think about disciplining Amnon, who rapes his half-sister, when he had the audacity to take another man's wife and commit adultery with her? Parents, listen to me. Your kids are watching everything you do. And if you want authority, moral authority to discipline, you have positional authority as the head of the house, but that doesn't mean a whole lot sometimes because you can say, I'm the dad of the house, you're gonna do what I say. They're gonna go, ah, right. After what you do, after the way you live. Moral authority, though, is when you lead the life in front of them. Then when you say, thus saith the Lord, this is the way we live our life, they can say, yeah, I see that in you, dad. I see that in you, mom. And they can accept your moral authority. Now, Tamar has a brother by the name of Absalom. His hatred begins to grow. 
And so what happens is Absalom kind of becomes this, uh, this whole cauldron of emotions and anger and jealousy and bitterness are all on the inside. And I'm just looking at the clock and i got to fly here, so, so listen fast. And it builds on the inside and it grows. And so for the next two years, this, this whole emotions goes, goes nuts in him and he throws a party. And what he does is he gets Amnon drunk at the party. And then he has people, his servants come and they take him out in his drunken state and they kill him. And they, because uh, he's getting revenge because of what he did to his sister Tamar. Now, do you notice the drunkenness here? Remember last week what David did? He tries to get Uriah drunk and tries to then convince him to sleep with his own wife Bathsheba. That did not work. And uh, because he's going to keep David open to public shame. And so he gets him drunk. They go out and kill him. And, uh, and so this goes on. And, and because he kills Amnon, Absalom has to flee the kingdom. And so he takes off and he flees the kingdom. He goes somewhere else. And for the next three years, he is out of the reach of David. David cannot get to Absalom. They are separated by distance for three years. And then David is missing his son. He's already grieving over Amnon, only to lose his one of his sons. But now another son is gone and is left probably the heir to the throne, and so he has this idea about bringing him back. Pick the story up, 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house, he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house, did not see the face of the king. Jump down, if you would, look again at uh, verse number 28. And Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Can you imagine living in Jerusalem, in the capital, in the seat, the center of worship, the capital of Jerusalem, the king is there, and you never see the face of your king and your father. What an incredible breach had occurred between David and Absalom. And even though he's back in the city, even though he's just a few blocks away, even though he's right there, they never would see the king's face. How many times, listen to me, church, do we come to church, do we act very religious, do we go through the motion, and we never behold the face of our King of kings and Lord of lords? What a tragedy. Turn to Psalm 24. I want to give you a real quick protocol for seeing the face of your king. Listen to this. If we want to behold the face of King Jesus, he says in in, in Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who does not lift his soul up to an idol or swear by what is false? He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God as Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, who seek your face, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Listen to me. If you want to behold the face of the king, the psalmist tells us exactly how that will happen. Who can behold his face? Who has a clean hands and a pure heart? If your hands aren't clean, you won't behold his face. You can come, sing, shout, jump. But if your hands are unclean, you can't behold his face. You can come and dwell in Jerusalem. You can dwell in the church. You can be in the capital. You can be in the holy city. But the psalmist said if your hands aren't clean and your heart's not pure, you cannot see the face of your king. Clean hands has to do with our actions. 
And in this case, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about murder, we're talking about uh, adultery, we're talking about uh, lust, we're talking about all these things that were going on in the kingdom, and they, they kept Absalom away. Psalm 51.9, we hide your face from my sins, O God. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence. And because David had done murder and, and adultery, he was out of the presence of God. And for that year before Nathan confronts him, he is out of the presence of the living God because his hands weren't clean. A pure heart that has to do with your inward holiness and motives toward God. It has to do with my pride and my lust and my bitterness and this stuff. Maybe that doesn't always lead to action. It's just all buried on the inside, but God sees the heart. And so you can't see the face of God with unclean hands or an impure heart. You cannot behold the face of the king with hidden sin in your heart. You may go through the motions and still not come into his presence Pride is what kept Absalom away. It was the pride of his heart. The Bible says, I didn't have time to read all the verses to you. He was a strong, handsome man, had long hair. All the ladies were like, ooh, Absalom, he's so handsome. And, and he walks around the kingdom. His appearance is striking. And, and what happens is Absalom begins to believe all the praise of the people. And he's just strutting around like, I really am something hot. First Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Go back there. It says, and in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. He had his own press corps, 50 guys. Here comes Absalom, all right, let's get ready. He's coming into town, he's moving around. Absalom's moving again, let's all go, guys. And everywhere he went, he had this entourage of, of uh, celebrities running around him. When we feel we can make it on our own, we won't bow down before another king. And he refused to bow down before David. And the Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, here's what happens. After two years of separation, he's in the kingdom, he's in the city. He says, this is ridiculous. I'm right here. I still can't see the king. I still can't behold his face. I still can't get together with him. And finally, through some events, he's able to come back and see the face of the king. Pick it up now with chapter 14 and verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him this. And the king summoned Absalom, and he came, and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and he kissed, and the king kissed Absalom. Course of time, Absalom provided the chariot, etc. Verse two, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision. Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from, he would answer, Oh, your servants from the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. There's no representative of the king to hear you. In other words, the king's too busy for you. I'm not, the king is. You see a real clear picture of disloyalty. He's taking the credit away from the king and instead of deferring praise to the king, he takes it for himself. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint could, could come see me and get justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him, he would bow down before him. Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Oh, my goodness. What a smooth operator. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king and asked for justice. So he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Hmm. He's a thief. 
He creates dissatisfaction and tension within the kingdom. He siphons off a few followers, and he begins to seize power. Now listen to me. Those who feel compelled to divide a kingdom never leave quietly to start their new kingdom. Their insecurity demands they have disgruntled followers around them. The problem is history will repeat itself. And if you start a following of disgruntled followers, uh, they will one day turn against you. Because you can't grow good fruit with bad seeds. And if you start with bad seeds, you're going to have bad fruit And the same rebellion they followed you into, they will also eventually rebel against you in the very same way. Absalom says, you know, David doesn't have it all together anymore. He's getting up there in age, kind of losing his marbles a little bit, getting too old. Things have gone amiss in the kingdom. Yeah, you're right. This shouldn't be happening in the kingdom. you got some complaints. you got a justifiable thing. And word begins to spread, and all of a sudden, everybody begins to talk in the kingdom. Absalom's the man. He's got the answer. He's the real leader. David's not the leader at all. And you see this disloyalty growing. Frustration comes. He listens, and he gathers all those around them who have their complaints and injustice to share. The talk is just going crazy in the kingdom. Finally, Absalom prizes, pride arises. He says, these things ought not to be. If our king thing would be differently, and he leads a rebellion. Listen, listening to an evil report leads us to form evil opinions about other people. When someone comes to you and says, do you know what I heard about so-and-so? The first thing you do is look them in the eye and say, can I quote you on this? Let's go back and talk to that guy. You begin to entertain evil report that evil gets in your spirit. It soon becomes an opinion of yours. I don't have time to read it, but go back and look at James chapter three when he talks about the danger of the tongue. It is that evil report that destroys families and churches and relationships and marriages and everything else along the way. Proverbs 16, 28, a whisper separated chief of friends. It's that tongue. Loyalty, on the other hand, is the opposite. It deflects praise uh, to another person, and we talked about that several weeks ago. It takes the blow and protects those who are in authority over you. And even though those in authority may be wrong, what do you do? You back the king. Absalom raised an army, leads a revolt, and, and here's what he does. He takes David, 10 of David's concubines, pitches a tent on the rooftop, And he fulfills the prophecy of Nathan down to the letter. He says he took your wives and he rapes them openly and publicly. And this is all about bringing shame to David. It wasn't a sexual thing. It was more about shaming David and showing I'm the new king. I'm the new man in here. And you see David going across the Kidron Valley. And I'm going to close this series up next week. There has to be a Kidron Valley for every single one of us. We have to cross that valley of self-denial and death. And David will finally cross that valley. He's crying all the way. He is weeping. He's not weeping so much for himself. He's weeping for the kingdom has been divided. The kingdom has been destroyed. There is nothing more tragic than when churches split, churches divide, an evil report comes along. Someone says, you know, Pastor Burbacher, he's not all there. And they may be partially right. He's not all there, doesn't have it together. You know, we could do things better let's go start our own church down the street and it happens again and again and again thank god he's been good to us and merciful at faith assembly of god 
Every prophecy Nathan ever shared came true. He lost his son. Bloodshed would never leave David's house. And he says, what you did in secret I will do in broad daylight before all of Israel. And he leaves the city. He is crying and weeping. Now, listen to me, church. This has been heavy. This has been heavy. God forgives. God forgives. But I want to challenge you. Watch what you're sowing your life into. Watch what you're giving your life away to because just as surely as God forgives, we can't presume on the grace of God and say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want to all week long and I'm going to sin and drink and party and sleep around and do this and do that and then I'll just come to church on Sunday morning and I'll pray a little prayer and I'm going to be okay and I go out and live the same kind of lifestyle all over again. You are going to reap destruction in your own life. It will destroy you. It'll destroy the spiritual life of God inside of you. It will choke it out. Don't go down that path. But if you sow to the Spirit, you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.